0: Alright, we have a lot to cover today. Um, You may know this passage in the Gospel of Mark, the last 12 verses, which is Mark 16 verses 9 through 20. You may know this section as involving the snake handling passage. We're going to talk about that today and I'll demonstrate like how I would interpret the passage that talks about believers being protected from snakes and poison. Um, It's also known as a passage people use to say that every believer needs to be baptized in order to be saved I'm going to refute that or attempt to refute that today. Hopefully give you something good to think about. And also it's a passage used by some to say that things like speaking in tongues are required to follow every believer. You haven't, you're not a believer if you haven't spoken tongues. So this is, needless to say, a controversial or difficult passage for normal Christians. But among scholars, it's known for a whole different reason. This passage in the Gospel of Mark, verses 9 through 20, is called the longer ending. And most scholars have concluded that it doesn't actually belong in the Gospel of Mark in the first place. Now, I know that that, hearing that can kind of freak you out a little bit. I'm going to talk about all that next week. That's not what I'm covering this week. This is what they call the longer ending. And that's what I'm going to call it in the context of today's study. I'm not trying today to weigh in on whether it belongs in Mark or not. I'm saving that for next week. I have a lot more hours of work I want to put into that particular message Of Research so I can get clarity for myself to bring hopefully clarity to you We're gonna talk about manuscript evidence and church fathers and their quotes internal evidence like vocabulary and style and doesn't match the rest of mark All that kind of stuff Next week today. I'm just asking this this question How would I interpret the longer ending of mark because a lot of commentaries? They hit this passage verses 9 through 20 and they literally don't offer an interpretation like the commentary just ends because they think, yeah, it's probably not authentic. I'm not going to interpret it at all. So I, I think that it's good to go through it, at least hypothetically, at least to say, hey, how would you interpret this on its, on its uh, face value? So we're going to read through the passage. I will just read the whole thing, verses 9 through 20, and then we're going to go through it verse by verse, thoughtfully, carefully, and slowly, asking a lot of hard questions, but I think getting a lot of good answers. Hopefully for you today. Um, I'm if, if this is your first time joining me, um, I'm Mike Winger. I'm a pastor in, in Southern California, and I primarily do this stuff online now. I just all I do is study and then teach. Like that's my whole life now, right? So my my goal here is to help you learn to think biblically about everything, uh, not just by telling you what to think about a passage, but trying to help you learn how to think about a passage, right, of scripture, and how to how to like think biblically about how to apply this into your life in all areas of life. So this is the journey we're on. And this is the end of a long, long series. For like two years, I've been teaching through Mark. There was a delay where I wasn't doing any teaching at all. But for two years, I've been doing this thing through the Gospel of Mark. We're coming to the very end now. We've got like three more studies in the whole Gospel, including today. And the entire playlist is down below. You can check the playlist link there and you can see the whole thing. We start by asking who wrote Mark and then we do our verse-by-verse study. And it's... um, I. Look, this could sound like a pride thing, um, but I think it's a very valuable and helpful study that has I've put more time into than any, any book I've ever taught in the past. Because thanks to you, you guys helping me do this, this is my full-time thing. Like I just study and then teach and then study and then teach. And anyway, let's get to the teaching part. Enough of that. This is Mark chapter 16, verse 9 through 20. Let's read through it. You'll notice the bracket, right? This is in the NASB. That's what I'm using for the Mark series is the New American Standard Bible. And um, the bracket here is to indicate, hey, uh, there's questions about whether this passage belongs. Again, that's next week. Let's just read. Now, after he had risen, Jesus, after he had risen, early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Okay, that's the first little story we get number two verse 12 after that he appeared in a different form by to two of them while They were walking on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others But they did not believe them either. That's the second story. There's a witness a report and disbelief Now we get the third story afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at, table, at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who, he had, who had seen him after he'd risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has been believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed in my name. They will cast out demons." They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Now, Side note here, you, you notice if you have the NASB, they have in italics this other, and we could call this an alternate ending. Uh, I'm just going to mention quickly because it's right there and it's in the translation I'm using. Um, this is, nobody thinks this is original to Mark. Like nobody, nobody thinks this is original to Mark. It's It exists in some manuscripts. I'll talk about why, perhaps why it does later on uh, next week. But this section, uh, they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent Through them from east to west, the sacred imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. That's definitely somebody else added that later. It's not that it's not true, it's just that it's not part of Mark. Okay, let's dig into this topic. Um largely the this section, verses nine through twenty, it functions as a really, really quick and short summary of massive amounts of information that we find elsewhere. So The the contents the appearance to mary the appearance to two men while they're walking the appearance to the eleven and the commission to Share the gospel with the world all of that and the ascension of jesus all of that is recorded elsewhere in scripture There's nothing unique in fact not only is it recorded elsewhere. We don't in Except for very little bits. We don't really get new information or further information by reading this particular summary There are a couple though the 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 way that Jesus appeared in a different form morphe in the greek we'll get to that and the snakes stuff and the poison stuff that is stuff that you don't see in any of the other accounts so we'll be talking about those as we get there to give you a brief overview of what we just read there's three appearances the first one's to mary she tells the the, the 11 and they don't believe her then there's another appearance to two people as they're walking on the way to the country and they tell the 11 and they don't believe them then Jesus appears to the apostles themselves And he rebukes them for their unbelief in other words a focus on believing the resurrection stories is is in this passage believing the witnesses who are telling you about their the account that's there Um, and then the commission to go to the to take the gospel to the whole world not just to the jews where previously jesus sent them to to the lost sheep of the house of israel now he's like hey take this gospel everywhere in the whole world then signs are going to follow and those signs will be evidence to prove the gospel message is true. So belief is the big issue we're confronted with. There's eyewitnesses of the resurrection. You ought to believe them. Um, That's kind of a short, short, short summary. Now let's go through this verse by verse because there's a whole lot more I want to cover that we can mine out of this passage. Really interesting stuff. And much of it applies to our lives and some of it is going to be touching on some controversial stuff. On one hand, skepticism. And on the other hand, um, I would consider reckless Spiritual practices, <laughs> so we'll talk about that um, here. We are verse 9 and uh, 9 through 11 Now after he'd risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene oh, It's the first appearance notice that from whom he would cast out seven demons She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her they refused to believe it So that's the short version. This is recorded elsewhere. We, re- we read about it in Matthew 28 and we also read about it in John And in both of those passages Mary is referenced as really the first person to see Jesus alive And so that's consistent right there. He first appeared to Mary Magdalene the um, The reality is that there may have been other women that saw Jesus as well But Mary's highlighted here and highlighting something we see in scripture, but it's not weird I'm not making up some weird new kooky thing. We see it in in our normal discussions, right? like if if I go out to eat and you're like, who was there? And maybe it's I'm like me and my wife and my and my my friends, okay? Um, Rick and Christiana were there. And so we talk about a couple friends that were there with us. Now, it's possible that other people were there too. And I just don't mention them because they're just not what's on my mind as I'm discussing that, that event. Maybe somebody else we saw was there, another friend of mine. I saw my friend Scott. He was sitting on the, on the table, just happened to be there. But I'm not highlighting him. So we do this in our stories too. You don't give exhaustive accounts of everything. You, you focus on what you're focusing on. So in John, some say um, there's a conflict here because in uh, Matthew, Mary's the first to see Jesus, but there's other women that are there. And in John, it seems that Mary's the only one there. Okay, but this is, and I'm just going to briefly touch this because I'm not trying to do a full harmony of the Gospels right now. But in John 20 verse 2, there's something I'd like to point out to you guys uh, because a lot of people miss this. So she ran, this is Mary. Magdalene. She ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And what did she say to them? They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. Now, the reason why I focus on this isn't because the appearance to her has happened yet individually. Here's the reason because John 20, verse 1, it highlights Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, and some skeptics say, therefore, she was the only one who came, and she came alone. But when she reports the message to the disciples, she says, we don't know where they've laid him, implying that even though John only mentions one Mary, he's aware of there being other people, you know, that are experiencing this with her. I just want to highlight that because we, we sometimes uh, don't pay careful attention to these things. So the longer ending though, what you'll notice, and I'm going to call that this verses 9, th- 9 through 20, the longer ending. Okay. This is the longer ending of Mark, as in there's a potential ending at verse 8. Then there's what I'll call the intermediate ending, which is what I said already doesn't belong, and then there's the freer login, which has nothing to do with today's study. okay, so um, the, um, this this longer ending though, it it doesn't actually narrate this stuff. Do you notice this? There's no narration. It's just he rose, he appeared to Mary, and then she went and told the disciples, they were mourning and weeping. that's the closest thing we get to a narration. and then they didn't believe. So this isn't like a narrated story like we get it throughout the rest of Mark. This is a very, very brief summary. It's not like what we have in John. It's not like what we have in Matthew. Very, very brief. It just says he appeared to her first. They didn't believe her when she told him. Let's talk about that response of unbelief because that's an emphasis in this passage, in the longer ending. They don't believe her. They don't believe the two disciples. And um, this is also recorded in the other gospels. There's nothing new to Mark's longer ending here. This is consistent in the other Gospels as well. So Luke 24, I'll take you there to give you one example. All the Gospels emphasize this. The embarrassing fact that the disciples did not initially believe. Here we are, Luke 24, verses 10 and 11. It says here, now, while now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and also the other woman with them were telling these things to the apostles, but these words appear to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. So this is, again, a report to the apostles that the apostles reject. This is consistent, a theme in all of the Gospels. And the idea is it was really hard to convince the apostles to believe. Now, this is not helpful to the early church initially, that the apostles were so resistant to belief. But it's somewhat helpful to the current church. (laughs) It's somewhat helpful to me now as I try to build cases for things like the historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ, and it's not just me, I'm not just like some kook out on my own here. Um, plenty of um, strong historical cases made by historians are, are there for this sort of thing. But sometimes skeptics respond to these cases by saying things like, well, you know, the Bible writers and the, the disciples, the gospels, they were gullible ancient people. I've heard this countless times. You, you guys have heard it too, right? When skeptics often talk about the Bible authors, they like to refer to them as Bronze Age shepherds. That's that's the phrase. It's for, it's like a catchphrase. You know you've been hanging out with skeptics if you refer to the Bible authors as Bronze Age goat herders, okay? That's, that's how you know you're hanging out with skeptics. Um, but the thing is, I just want to draw attention to what I will call um, modernist pride. That is, that a, if you herd goats, you have low IQ. Let's think about that for a minute. <laughs> like, like, as if as if your the job makes you intelligent. Like that's not how it works, right? Like so, that's strange. Um, and b, as if people from the past are automatically stupid and people from the present are automatically smart. This is something we we risk every generation. And you, you if you live long enough or if you just read history, you will see every generation mock the generations that come before them as being fools. And then the generations that come later, they mock those ones as being fools. And the ones that come later, they mock those ones as being fools. Why? Because it's the arrogance of modernism. Like whatever is current, whatever is say right now, it happens to be 2021. Maybe it will be when you're watching this or not. Right now, it's, it's like, hey, guys, I can't believe this is happening in 2021. Like, we all know and agree on these things, even though we have no effort to prove them true. We just, we're modern, so we must be right. And this is like a dangerous perspective to take. It bleeds into criticism of the, the message of, um, the, of, of what history says about the resurrection of Christ. So sometimes skeptics say, yeah, they're gullible ancient people. That's why they believed the resurrection. Now, can you think of why I brought this up? Like get your, get your brain juices going here. The disciples refused to believe the report of Jesus being risen. Skeptics say, sometimes some skeptics say that the reason they believe the reports about Jesus's resurrection is because they were gullible ancient people. But the historical accounts say they refused to believe the reports. Do you see the inconsistency here? That's how you know this hypothesis. The belief in the resurrection was a result of gullibility. It doesn't work with history. They did not believe it. They were prone to reject it. Like it says in Luke um, chapter 24, verse 11 here, the words appear to them as nonsense. They're not gullible here. They think it's nonsense. They didn't believe him. It's consistent in all accounts. And the fact that it's embarrassing for the early church gives even stronger weight to the fact that it's historically accurate. Like why would the early church want to tell everybody how hard it was to convince the disciples to believe in Jesus when they're telling everyone else to believe in Jesus? based on those guys' accounts, right? It's embarrassing. It's just happened. That's just what happened. So some would respond instead against the historical case for the resurrection by saying it was the result of hallucination. Hallucination is one of the worst supported arguments, but it's one of the most popular arguments, right? So the swoon theory kind of died. <laughs> it's at least mostly dead at the moment. Um, but the, the idea that the disciples hallucinated Jesus Um, let's go ahead and push against that a little bit since we're dealing with resurrection accounts here in the longer ending of Mark. Um, Hallucinations, there's actually research, you know, some of us might not know this, but there's actually research where guys have, you know, done actual scientific research on hallucinations, right? People having visions and idiosyncratic experiences that's this sort of thing so hallucinations uh they've categorized them into different kinds of hallucinations one of the ways you categorize a hallucination is you say is it single mode or multi-mode um a a single mode hallucination is one that say you have an auditory hallucination like say you you hear something but nobody else hears it it's not really there it's not just ringing in your ears because you have you know eardrum issues it's like you hear a voice and it's there's no voice Like nobody else hears the voice. Okay, that's a single mode hallucination. Um, Visual, that's a different mode. Maybe you see something moving and you're like, oh, I saw something there. Uh, That's a visual hallucination. You could also have like kinetic or um, tactile physical things where you you feel something that's not actually there to be felt. Okay, so that's a, a, a different kind of experience. So multimodal hallucinations are when you combine these things. Oh, it was visual, auditory, and it was tactile. That was the description of what they experienced with Jesus. When we get these accounts, we have them experiencing things where they see Jesus, they hear Jesus, and they touch Jesus. And there's a lot of details specifically on that. Thomas, come, you know, put your hand here in my side. So this, this, what we can say here, at least this, is that that theory doesn't make sense of the accounts. Right? That theory, hallucination, doesn't make sense of the accounts. There's nothing in the documented cases of hallucinations that show these kind of hallucinations, multimodal hallucinations. In addition to them being multimodal, which is pretty rare, they are prolonged experiences. So most hallucinations are just very, brief, fleeting moments of a, of a, of a hallucination. A lot of people experience them, but they're very fleeting. And usually the person's aware they're a hallucination. Generally speaking, they're, you know, for the moment, maybe they're confused a moment later, they know what's going on. This is not the case with the resurrection of Jesus. It happens multiple times. It happens over prolonged experiences. And some would respond to this by saying, well, you know, still hallucinations, better experience explanation than a resurrection. And this is, this is purely sustained by, I have such a disbelief towards the resurrection that I just won't accept it. <laughs> That's what it ends up coming down to if you listen carefully, but um, which is unfortunate. But the, uh, the things that we can add to this are the fact that there are no accounts of hallucinations that match what we see with Jesus. Like in the literature of hallucination research, there's nothing like what we see with Jesus. It's multi-mode. It's prolonged experiences. It's multiple experiences. And here's a big key. It happens with multiple witnesses. We don't even have examples documented Examples of mass hallucinations where large groups of people experience the same hallucination That's especially that's multimodal and that lasts for a significant period of time. That doesn't happen It doesn't happen. In other words, the hallucination theory doesn't seem to fit the data. That's that's my explanation for you there Um, Others would say well, yes, but but the most common hallucinations and I should deal with this Are what are called grief induced hallucinations. Usually this is when elderly people lose somebody in their life And they feel like they see them later on. This is actually not that uncommon They they feel like they see them, you know The the husband has died and the wife just thinks for a moment. She saw him in the hallway. there, just just a moment there That's actually not that uncommon and this is part of our our Experience of just it's so on our minds and everything that's going on And so some would say well the disciples were grieved and so they hallucinated Jesus. Okay, well It doesn't fit grief induced hallucinations for a number of reasons, multimodal, tactile, all those things, prolonged experiences, multiple witnesses, all that grief induced hallucinations don't have those qualities altogether. But also we have the apostle Paul. Paul was not grieving that Jesus died. He was quite happy about it. He was very happy. He was pleased to him. The death of Jesus was confirmation that this whole Christian thing was a big joke. Paul sees Jesus and experiences something That is difficult to explain away with other than it being an actual real experience with jesus that was not a grief-induced hallucination that's all i'm saying and so um i i again i think that what we do is we we have the arrogance of the present of modernism to look back at people in the past and we just think i'm assuming you're wrong and so i'll just call you gullible and that's my explanation but it's not wise um some would actually then push back this is um, another pushback because because most people aren't atheists, okay? Most of the world are not atheists. Most of them believe in God, believe there's some sort of creator of all things, some sort of power behind it all, some mind behind it all. And they would sometimes turn away from the resurrection of Jesus and say, well, it was just a ghost, okay? Because they believe that there's like a spirit after you die. So maybe it was just Jesus's spirit. I want to push back on that too, because maybe you think that's like a valid way to explain the resurrection. Here's a couple reasons to think that's not the case. First off, there's a proclivity in the disciples to actually think that it is a ghost. Um, meaning they would more quickly believe Jesus's spirit had appeared than believe that Jesus had risen. Here's an example of this in the scripture. Luke 24:36. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. So Jesus appears to the disciples. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. Their immediate go-to was not Jesus rose from the dead it was Jesus he's dead and this is his ghost this is his spirit verse 38 and he said to them why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts notice this that believing that Jesus was a ghost was not biblical Christian belief like this is what we would call unbelief there are some Christians who think Jesus. they say they're Christians and they say Jesus didn't bodily rise from the dead that it was he was just a spiritual resurrection That would not, that's unbelief. That's doubting. That's not Christian faith. Um, We need to let Christianity be what it is, whether you accept it or reject it. Verse 39, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So he's, he's like, I'm physical. He had to demonstrate it to them, but this wasn't enough for them, right? And when he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet so they could see the wounds, the marks of the nails while they still could not believe it. Because of their joy and amazement, he says, have you anything here to eat? Now, I've heard some, uh, some teachers say that, G- and, and there could be something valid here, but I think we're missing something. Uh, th- they've said that Jesus says, have you got anything to eat? Because Jesus is hungry. It's been three days since he ate. Um, okay, that's possible, but, but I think that's not the point of the passage. They see Jesus physically. They think he's a spirit. He says, look, it's me. I got hands and feet. Let me show you the wounds. The same body that was on that cross is the body before you now. They still aren't believing. So he says, do you have anything to eat? And they give him some fish and he takes it and eats it before them. And that is to demonstrate that he's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. It was really important that they realized he was not a spirit. In uh, John 20, 25, we have another example of this. I don't know what I just did. John twenty twenty five. Apparently, I just created a note somehow <laughs> in my software. Okay. Uh, this says, so the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. And this, of course, is the guy we call Doubting Thomas. But he said to them, unless I see in his hand the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, slow down for a minute and let's analyze this like it's a historical account. The early church, it's not in their interests to make the disciples look bad. They are their heroes. Thomas is the guy who brought the gospel to many people and taught them these things. And yet here in this account from the early church, close to the time of the events, we have Thomas himself being unbelieving about the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, that's embarrassing. It implies historicity one of the things that Thomas has an issue with is that it's really hard for him to believe that Jesus is physically raised he'd much easier believe Jesus was a ghost or that people were hallucinating or that people were just gullible (laughs) all the same theories that go around today but what convinced Thomas was when Jesus actually shows up and demonstrates uh to him like yes it's me it's the same me we have other you know things we can say in scripture to to show that they're in their context, they would have much more easily said it was a ghost, not a physical risen Jesus, but they were persuaded, anyways, against that tendency. So, Mark 6 49, when they see Jesus walking on the sea, they say, It's a ghost, right? They assume when they see something like that, that it's a spiritual and it's not physical. When Peter escapes from prison and the angel, you know, releases him from his chains, hits him on the side to get his attention, he comes out and he comes to the door. Of, of the disciples, they're praying for him that he'll be released. They're fearful that he'll be killed. Peter comes. He's knocking on the door. Rhoda answers the door and she's like, "Ah, it's Peter. She runs inside to tell everybody Peter's outside. Peter's outside. And they don't believe her and they say, nah, it's his angel. And now there's a debate on what they mean by that. Um, they could mean it was his spirit um, or they could mean uh, something weird uh, about guardian angels thing that Um, Even if they believe that's not what scripture is teaching. It might just be a cultural thing that they had The point is for the sake of today's study in Acts 12 verses 12 through 16 They think Peter's physical appearance before them is more easily explained by a spiritual thing, right? That tells us that they're not gullible people who easily believe resurrection accounts No, they themselves would say you're just being gullible. I don't believe Jesus rose (laughs) It was something else that changed their mind. Their tendency was to disbelieve, to think it was a ghost, but they ended up believing. And even though they were cowards when Jesus was on the cross and they were hiding afterwards, these same people who were prone to disbelieve the resurrection, these same guys believed it and were willing to die for that belief. These are the historical things we need to put together. What's the best explanation for the fact that they, against their inclinations, believed Jesus rose, claiming they'd seen him with their own eyes, and they were willing to die for that belief when previously they were cowards. Well, if Jesus rose, that would explain the data well. Historically, it looks like Jesus rose. I think that's kind of a big deal. Mark 16 verse 12. Let's continue. We got a lot more ground to cover today. <clears throat> it says here, after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they, were t- uh, while they were walking along their way to the country. And they went away and reported to the others, but they did not believe them either. So you see the same pattern. He appears, the people who see him tell the disciples, they don't believe it. Now, this account is reported in more detail in Luke. In Luke 24, verses uh, 25 through 27, uh, I'm actually going to read just little pieces of the account. We, We get the whole story in Luke 24. These two disciples after the death of Christ, he's resurrected, but they don't know it yet. Okay. And they're walking a seven mile journey from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus. Uh, Seven miles approximately to get from one place to the other. So they have a long travel through the country to get to this uh, town hard to even know what town it was We guess at where it may be it might have just been such a small town that we don't even know where it is anymore but Luke 24 verse 25 Jesus encounters these guys and They complain about how Jesus has died and how their hopes have been dashed and his response to them is "O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer and these things, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, I love this, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. This is, to me, this is this is amazing and beautiful. And, and I've launched a whole series I, I did a while back on Jesus in the Old Testament, my favorite series I've ever done. I highly encourage you guys to check it out if you just want to be, Edified and encouraged in the Lord. I will put a link down below for it, but you can also find it on BibleThinker.org, my website, <clears throat> which um, everything's free on there, and, and it's it's searchable and all the content's on there for you. So, um, yeah, Jesus in the Old Testament, uh, my attempt to do some little shadow Im- imitation of what Jesus did with them. So for seven miles they're walking, and Jesus is telling them about all the scriptures and how they all relate to Christ. This is a really neat, neat story that we read about in Luke. But what we're going to find is that, and this is probably the first moment where there, it might feel like there's a divergence between Mark's longer ending and one of the other gospels, Luke. So I'm being careful with my words here. I say it might feel like there's a divergence. I'm going to walk through what this is and, and um, how I would explain it. So trying to be fair with the data here. But in Luke 24 verses 15 and 16, Um, We read about how like they didn't recognize Jesus when he first appeared to them. They couldn't they couldn't see that it was Jesus and Luke seems to explain this as being a problem with their eyes Not like they were physically blind or something like that But that their eyes were like kept from recognizing Jesus mark's gonna explain it differently so Let me walk through how Luke seems to imply it was a problem with their ability to perceive verse 15 while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached them and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So that seems to imply it was their eyes. Is it absolutely clear that it was only a problem with their eyes? Like, no, it, it just seems I would lean that way based on the description. Then in verses 30 and 31, it says, when he would reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and breaking it, he began giving it to them. This is at the end of their journey. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, right? And then he vanished from their sight. So Jesus appears to them, but they don't recognize him. Luke, uh, here's how I would, I would interpret it. The implication, I'm not going to be dogmatic, but the implication is that it was something wrong with their eyes. It was not something that visibly was different with Jesus. When Jesus approaches the disciples in the upper room, he's like telling them, look, it's me. As if there's a recognizability there, okay? But... In the longer ending of Mark is recorded a little differently. So in Mark 16 verse 12, it says, after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. That word there for form is the Greek word morphe. Like you can think metamorphosis, like, or, you know, and it doesn't mean like something weird. I mean, it, it, it the word form or morphe means like outward appearance. So Mark seems to very clearly be teaching that Jesus in this one occasion he appeared to them with a different appearance. Somehow they couldn't see him because he actually looked different. Whereas I would, I would have before thought Luke is implying it's something with their eyes. They're being restrained from recognizing him. He's not being physically altered in some sense. So he, there, there's obviously two solutions. <laughs> one solution is you think the longer ending doesn't belong in Mark. So you go, you just say, well, that's just Luke, some commentary from some early Christian. This isn't from Mark. Um, another solution is that perhaps, and this I think is valid, perhaps their eyes in Luke, their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus because he was in a different form. Okay, that's also possible. And it may be that their eyes were opened in that even though he's in a different form in some sense, they're given the ability to see who he is. That, that's also possible. After all, it's only an implication in Luke. It's not like a clear dogmatic thing so it's just my guess Um, so in other words here's an interesting thing depending on whether you take the longer ending to be authentic or not you may change how you interpret a very important appearance of Jesus you may think Jesus appeared with a different looking form physically in one only one appearance because even Mark has it that way he appears to Mary then he appears in a different form to these two guys then he appears right normally it seems to the to the eleven. So, um, so that's interesting. And this may, this may change your theology about how you view, um, or at least how you build your case for what our glorified bodies are going to be like, because you figure we'll be like him. So there's, there could be some things there that actually they matter, but they're not like deep theological issues there, but they are interesting. The things I care about now, some people suppose, um, there's a contradiction here because in the longer ending, it says that. He appears to them while they're walking on their way to the country. Oh, let me, sorry. I'm, I don't have it up on the screen. There you go. Um, Jesus appears to the two while they're on their way to the country. But in Luke, we have them um, on the road to Emmaus. And so some have argued that this is a contradiction. Uh, this is one of those cases where you have to have, okay, you don't want to be like so gracious To the writers of of any text that that you interpret them any way you want right like a flimsy interpretation method But you also don't want to be so strict that you don't allow for normal figures of speech and normal ways of communication So here in mark they're along their way to the country Emmaus is about seven miles away That's where their final destination was but mark highlights the fact that when he appeared to them They were probably nearer to Jerusalem on their way out to the country which is eventually going to in in getting them to emmaus it may also be that emmaus is like a podunk town <laughs> since we have a hard time locating it now um and that the uh the the, the town itself was considered in the country right because if you've ever lived in a really small town there are areas village areas that are small enough that we just call it out in the country Right. But if you live in like Southern California where it's all just one giant megalopolis, one giant continuing city group where you can't even tell when you've passed from one city to another, then you would perhaps think there's a problem here that doesn't exist. So, um, okay, back to the longer ending, verse 14. Afterward, he appeared as a third appearance to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table and he approach, reproached them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. Third appearance, the entire thing takes one verse. In fact, we have verses 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. We got five verses to record three appearances of Jesus and the response to the appearances. Very, very brief. This is super consistent with the longer ending. The longer ending crams massive amounts of, it's going to get a lot bigger, more content into these little passages these, these 12 verses, then we have in the entire rest of the gospel of Mark. We'll come to that later. I just want us to acknowledge what we're looking at here, see what we're reading. So this may be from Luke 24 verses 36 through 39, or it may be uh, the same account. Some, okay. So just to bring you guys into the debate a little bit, those who think the longer ending was written later would think that the author borrowed from Luke, borrowed from Acts, borrowed from John. We'll talk about that next week. Um, Others would just say, no, um, it's just consistent with Luke, consistent with Acts, consistent with John. And I'm not going to try to weigh in on that today. But the passage it's consistent with, at least, is Luke 24, verses 36 through 39. The 11 are gathered and Jesus appears to them. And even in Luke, he corrects them for their unbelief. So that's real consistent. Okay, then we get, and I've already talked about the unbelief issues. So we'll go to verse 15. Um, And he said to them, here's his commission. Go into all the world, all the world. And preach the gospel to all creation. So universally go and preach. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. We'll come back to the universal call of preaching the gospel. That is our main point we get from this passage. This is like what I got to apply to me. And you got to apply to you. Is the call of Jesus to bring the gospel to everyone. Every It, it is a responsibility of individual believers. Even if you're not an evangelist. Um, your neighbors are in need of hearing about Jesus if they were in need of something else and you had the cure for their problems, it, you would, you'd be morally obligated to give it to them, right? And we need to tell people about Christ. But verse 16, this is the verse that's used to suggest that baptism is required for salvation. Okay, so this is probably the first significantly controversial issue that comes up in the passage. Um, I am going to argue against that. I have videos arguing against that. I have a debate arguing against that online. But let's focus on this one passage. Um some would say that the formula is if you believe and you're baptized, you'll be saved. Therefore, if you believe but don't get baptized, you're not saved, right? That would be the formula they have. But verse 16 doesn't, doesn't read that way, does it? He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he has disbelieved shall be condemned. Baptism is not mentioned in the second part. That's significant because it's not super clear that a dogmatic teaching on baptism is being offered here, but rather a universal call to baptize. If a dogmatic teaching about baptism not, uh, be, baptism being required for salvation, if that's what we're being given here in this passage, then I'd expect it to be in the second part as well because it's it's required. It's not just something you're called to do, it's something you have to do or you're not saved. But when the negative comes, and here's the first argument against this, he who has disbelief shall be condemned. Why isn't baptism mentioned there? Because... It's not the key. It's not the focus. It's not the thing that saves you. Purely belief is. Okay, that's that's one reason. Another reason is this. Customary expectation in the early church was that everybody got baptized. Um, we can sometimes miss this in our modern churches. There are some ways, and I don't want to be one of those people who's like the armchair critic of all of Christians around the world. Like, that's a very dangerous position to be in. I'm not trying to do that at all. But I do want to acknowledge that there are there are problems that we can see in, in churches even though we're not meant to become the, the critics of all Christians around the world. Like that's not my job. But the problem I want to acknowledge is this. A lot of churches don't see baptism as happening shortly after a person comes to faith. And through their traditions, and this happened pretty early on in church history, this happened pretty quick. Like we're talking like not even a hundred years after Jesus, they seem to be making people wait to be baptized. Whereas in the gospels, in the new Testament, in the book of Acts, people got saved and they got baptized just like that. Like it just happened right away. That was it. You didn't, you didn't have like a six month training program. You didn't have to wait two years. They didn't have to like prove themselves a lot. They just put faith and trust in Christ and they got baptized. That was it. So so in the context of the church that's hearing these, this this uh, this passage initially, he who has believed and has been baptized, look, everyone who believes gets baptized. There's, in other words, what I'm saying is this, it's not even on the radar of the author of this passage that there's people who are believing and refusing baptism. And that author is probably not trying to comment on those kinds of people because those kinds of people aren't around because you don't have what we have nowadays. I've known pastors who were in ministry who have been, Serving in church for 20 years and they have never been baptized and they're at this point too embarrassed to tell somebody they've never been baptized Because the church that they Started joining just didn't make a big priority of it. And so, um, that's a modern a more modern thing It wasn't really an issue in the early church from the very beginning people were being baptized in Jesus name Even though they barely understood the gospel um, And they were just getting baptized. Okay, that was just what was happening in the early church And in the in the gospels and in the book of acts So the issue of people believing but refusing refusing baptism is not on the radar in this passage, I don't believe. I don't think baptism is required for salvation, right? But I still, I can agree with the statement. If you believe and are baptized, you'll be saved. I agree. I just disagree with the statement. If you believe and are not baptized, you won't be saved. But that's not in the passage, is it? Okay. Second issue is that... um, or the third issue, sorry, that was the second, is that we have clear examples in the New Testament of people who were saved and were not baptized. These are clear examples. Okay, the first one I'll offer would be the thief on the cross. I think he's very significant. Let me be clear here. And some people are like, well, he was in the old covenant, not the new. Well, you're just arbitrarily picking when covenants begin, right? Let's be real. You are. What we know about the thief is that he believed in Jesus and that's how he was saved. Right, his his faith wasn't in a promised Messiah like arbitrarily. It wasn't something. It was specifically he believed in Jesus, and he was saved. And he didn't get baptized with no good reason to think he did. And um, he uh, he didn't follow Jesus for any length of time. The guy had no works. All he did, all he had, was death bed conversion, and he was saved. The second example I'll give is Cornelius in Acts ten, and you and you might want to read this on your own to like confirm it. But if you read it very carefully, Cornelius is a Gentile and his group who's with him, there's others too, who um, they want to hear more about Jesus. And so Peter, the apostle, comes to teach them about Jesus. At this stage in the early church, they're not sure if Gentiles have to become Jewish or not. (laughs) Yeah, they were figuring it out. Even in the book of Acts, they're still figuring things out and the Holy Spirit's still revealing things. So they're not sure. Cornelius is an example of a Gentile who gets saved without being circumcised without taking on the law of Moses. But if you'll pay attention to the passage in Acts 10, you'll see he gets saved, filled with the Spirit before he's baptized. So Peter preaches to them the gospel. And then Cornelius, he's believing, he's trusting in Christ as he hears the message. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they begin speaking in tongues as a way of proving to... This is interesting as you read the passage. This, This was not just proving that they're believers. This was a way of God proving to Peter and the other Jews who were part of the body of Christ with him, that Gentiles don't need to become Jews to become Christians, to become saved. And so it proves it. And then Peter responds at the end of all that by saying, how do we how do we refuse baptism to those who have received the Spirit just as we have? In other words, in this instance, Acts 10, baptism is clearly a confirmation of the person's salvation and not a cause of the person's salvation. This is an, an indisputable... Example of somebody who's saved before they're baptized. There's there's other stuff too. um, And this one can get a little bit complicated, but I I hope you'll follow with me on this. In Romans chapter four, and I'm just gonna mention it briefly for the sake of time because I got so many things to tell you today. In Romans chapter four, we haven't even got to the snake stuff. (laughs) That's coming later. Um, But in Romans chapter four, um, Paul is making a case. This is important that we get this. Because I think a lot of Christians, we, we arbitrarily separate the Old and New Testaments um, and God's way of saving people in the Old versus New Testament as though they're like these really different ways. That's actually not Paul's teaching. In Romans 4, Paul teaches that the way that we're saved now is the same way that they were saved then. That Abraham and David in particular are examples of people who were saved the same way that you and me are saved. He uses the term justified to refers to this whole salvation experience. So, uh, Romans 4, he says, Abraham was justified, right? Apart from works, he was justified by faith when he believed God. Now, here's my question as it relates to baptism. Was Abraham baptized? No. Abraham was never baptized at any point. That's interesting. His second example is David. And he says, David is an example of someone who's saved apart from works, who's forgiven, um, and, and, and talks about the blessedness of being forgiven. Read Romans 4. You can check it out. Was David baptized? Now, here's, here's the part where you might miss how this theological, my, my case is working here. What I'm suggesting is that Paul, not me, Paul, right? Under the inspiration of the Spirit is using Abraham and David as examples of how salvation works. And his point is to show you that you can be saved by just believing. Now I think repentance is part of that believing because you're turning from sin to God, but, but that's an attitude change, it's not works, right? So he's like, you can be saved by just believing. Paul is using an example of how salvation works for you and me right now, and two people he chooses to highlight were not baptized. Baptism for salvation is not on the radar here. Baptism relates to salvation, it, 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 it speaks about salvation, it's important and everyone should do it. And if you haven't been baptized, Um, And you're a believer in jesus then then that's a real it's a real issue like you should I don't care how humble you have to be about it. Go get baptized Um, Find a believer find a pastor find an older older believer in the lord who can just baptize you It doesn't have to be an ordained person like there's nothing in scripture that says that But it should be a community thing. It shouldn't be private Gather some believers around together and get a bathtub and get baptized. All right, but this next verse is the um is the one that is probably most commonly quoted to say that baptism is required for salvation. I'll just throw this out there. Corresponding to that, Peter says, baptism now saves you. And that's usually the only part of the verse they quote, (laughs) which is a red flag. Um, Obviously, it says baptism saves you. Okay, that would imply you're saved by being baptized. But Peter himself is very careful to make sure that you know he's not talking about just the physical act. He says, not the removal of the dirt from the flesh. What does he mean when he says baptism saves you? Look how he describes what he's talking about. An appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He means, and remember, everybody's getting baptized when they first put trust in Jesus. So he's like, your baptism saves you. not the water thing. I'm talking about that thing you did when you got baptized or around the same time as you got baptized, the baptism speaks to, which is you trusting in Christ and appealing to God to cleanse your heart, give you that good conscience through uh, belief in the resurrection. That's what he's talking about. Okay. He's talking about how baptism is a symbol, just like um, Noah and the ark was a symbol represents being saved through water, but he's very careful to make sure he's not talking about the physical thing. So that's, probably the number one verse used to say that baptism saves. And I think it refutes that use in its, in its own context. Um, now, let me just offer a word. That I, I wouldn't think I'd have to offer, but, but if I'm paying enough attention to our culture, I, I think I have to say it. Um, some people currently believe, and I say some, um, let me put it this way. There were surveys done where a majority of, I think it was the millennial generation, believes that say they're Christians, the ones who say they're Christians, the majority of them believe it's wrong to try to make other people Christian. The reason why I'm highlighting this right now is because we're in, in the longer ending, we're in the Great Commission where Jesus commands that the gospel be preached to every single nation and person around the world. Everybody. If they're a human, they need to hear the gospel. That's the idea. There are some nowadays who push against this saying, well, that's rude or that's mean or that's not whatever words are going to come up with it. Or they'll even say things like it's colonizing. If, if you think that you can't preach the gospel because it's rude or or it's um, whatever, colonizing, um, you're rejecting the command of Jesus. And you've called Jesus Lord and you're telling him, no, Lord, you're wrong. And you've done it on the most important thing in in the world which is telling people about how to be saved through Christ that they would have eternal life there is no more valuable thing that Christians can do than bring the gospel to people and no more ridiculous and harmful thing than for a Christian to think they're not supposed to do that that's crazy um, Jesus's great Commission here uh, which you can also read in Matthew 28 makes it clear that we're supposed to be sharing these things so let's go now to um, verse 17 and we'll get into probably what you're most interested in at this point these signs will accompany those who have believed in my name they will cast out demons that's one sign they will speak with new tongues so exorcisms tongues they will pick up serpents and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them so you could call that one sign is not being harmed by poisons including poisonous serpents Um, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover so i'll call that four four signs these Two verses right here have led to a lot of things. Um, some want to excise the entire longer ending of Mark simply because of these verses. Like, Ooh, I don't really like the way that sounds. I'd rather not have to deal with it. What I'd like to say is that's not a good way to handle scripture. Um, even if this passage doesn't belong in the text of scripture, and, I, and I'm going to talk about that next week. If it doesn't belong, it shouldn't be because you don't like what it says. What are you going to do the rest of the Bible when you encounter stuff that you don't like? <laughs> That's like not a safe way to do things. But I also think on closer inspection, these verses, they're not the problem that people often think they are. So... Let me show you first how consistent this is with so much other stuff we read, read about in the New Testament. That signs accompany those who believe. That's the first thing. Uh, this is, we see in many passages of scripture, John 14, 12, Acts 5, 12. We see this in different places where there's signs accompanying those who are preaching the gospel, where Peter says to the to the cripple, like, I don't have any money, silver and gold. I don't have it. What I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Like Christians believe in a miracle working God who's active especially in the early church but who's active now. <laughs> and so um I'm not a cessationist although I'm going to make cessationists happy with some things I'm about to say <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to bother them with some other stuff. So um so the signs in particular casting out demons This is so obvious as I don't feel like I have to give you any scriptures on it Throughout the New Testament the Gospels Jesus is casting out demons He commissions the disciples to cast out demons in the book of Acts. They're casting out demons This is something that was happening, especially in the foundation laying of the gospel Especially there. There's a lot of this going on speaking with new tongues. This is very interesting that it occurs in the longer ending Um, But we, we we read about this in Acts 2 and Acts 10. There's other places, but especially these two two spots showing the, the the new thing that God is doing, giving the Holy Spirit to people um, in a new way. And so they speak in tongues as a way of like outwardly proving it and also as a witness to others. So this is always, in this passage, verse 17, these tongues are with interpretation. Some will use verse 17 of Mark in the longer ending to say that everyone has to have like a private tongue language or that they have to speak in tongues but without interpretation. That's not the context of this Mark passage. Um, I don't think everyone has to do this. I'll talk about that in a minute. But, but more to the point, these are signs. And speaking in a private tongue language isn't a sign of anything. Paul the Apostle says that if you do this without interpretation, it's not a sign to anyone. It's edifying to you, but people will just think you're crazy if they hear you doing it. So one mistake that we see in some, some charismatic churches is treating tongues that are not interpreted as if they're a sign of something, of anything. And that's not the case. And, and this creates strange situations that 1 Corinthians tries to avoid by, t- by literally the Holy Spirit telling you, people will think you're crazy if you do this. <laughs> we should listen to the Holy Spirit. Um, so the speaking in new tongues is a sign because it's interpreted and understood. And not just interpreted by a member of the congregation, but rather it's actually understood by the non-believers who are in your presence. That's how it is in Acts chapter two. Um, that's, that's the emphasis here, Okay. Um, any interpretation is a good is a good thing. It does move it towards a sign, but no interpretation, not a sign. Um, verse eighteen. Oh, oh, the reason by by the way, the reason why this is so interesting is this is the only place, if it's if it's authentic, it's the only place in all four gospels where tongues is spoken of, at least that I can find. I don't know of any place in Mark, elsewhere in Mark, in Luke, in John, or in Matthew, where tongues are being spoken of like this. Tongues comes in Acts chapter 2 like a, like a surprise, like a surprise, like they weren't expecting this. This is just something God did to, boom, just to, you know, and it connects to Old Testament stuff, but it wasn't something that they had been talking about or expecting based on the teachings of Jesus directly. So um, that's interesting. That some would say is evidence that the longer ending uh, is being influenced by the event of the tongues happening later on in the early church but not by the words of Jesus. Um, I'm not going to weigh in on that today. I just want you to notice some stuff. So verse 18, they will pick up serpents and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Okay, these are the other signs. Picking up serpents um, and drinking deadly poison, we're going to talk about this in some detail. But first, let me say how it relates to early church events because that's kind of the thing a lot of people don't notice. Okay, so in... in um, in Acts chapter 28, we have an event where Paul the Apostle... Actually, I'm just going to go to it here. Acts 28 verses 3 through 5. He gets shipwrecked on an island, Malta. Shipwrecked. And there they wash ashore and there's natives of the island and they're they're just like recovering from their shipwreck. And Paul's making a fire. So when he gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat. Uh, snakes do like to... Uh, sleep and hide in stick piles and rock piles and stuff. And the viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. Now there are poisonous snakes on this island and the natives know it. And they saw the creature hanging from his hand. They began saying to one another, undoubtedly, uh, this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live, which was probably their reference, possibly anyways, to like a pagan deity. Um, However, verse five, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. And of course, verse six, they decide that he's a God. <laughs> they start saying, oh, he's a God. And so it was, a situa- it was a, one of those wrong answers only situations from the, uh, from the islanders in Malta. But this is interesting because it's the only like early church event that may relate to the content in the longer ending of Mark here about picking up serpents. Now, he's not picking him up deliberately. He's not deliberately putting himself in harm's way or something, but he's being protected as a way of opening the door to preach the gospel. So it's actually a sign, the snake biting him and him not hurting, not hurting, the poison not hurting him is a sign that helps open the door to the gospel being preached to these people. That would be consistent with the content in the longer ending of Mark. Um, but nowhere else though in the Bible do we have anything like this where serpents are picked up, snakes are picked up and seen as like... Uh, a sign or the poison thing being spoken of. Um, there's one passage you might be thinking of and you might think I've missed it, but I'm actually gonna offer a different interpretation than you might be familiar with. So Luke 10, 19, Jesus says, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Now, a literal reading of these terms is you can stomp on snakes and they won't hurt you and you can stomp on scorpions and they won't sting you. Um, but I don't think that was what was intended. So, um, there's an article I'll, I'll link down below. I forgot to put it there, but it's, it's a uh, Dr. Michael Heiser who has a really interesting article on this. I don't agree with everything he says, but I think it's a great resource for people as well, at least to get you thinking on things. And let me see if I can summarize a few important points that I think are very relevant. Um, it's possible that serpents and scorpions are being used metaphorically. They are used that way in other sources. So Psalm 91 talks about serpents as well. The Jews of Jesus' day looked at Psalm 91 as an exorcism psalm and saw those serpents in the passage of Psalm 91 as being metaphors for satanic powers. So in that context, look at the the overall view of what happens in Luke. Jesus sends out the disciples in Luke chapter 10 and he gives them authority to cast out demons. When they come back, the 70... They are rejoicing, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Then Jesus responds, and the whole subject the whole time is casting out demons. I I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, a metaphor for the demonic powers, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. That's the commentary on what he just said. He's in, in, sort of interpreting it for us. But rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So Luke 10.19, this is interesting. And it may weigh in a little bit on the authenticity of the longer ending, but not heavily. Just a little tiny weight. <laughs> um, Luke 1019, the only other passage that seems to speak directly about snakes like this, seems to be using them as metaphors for demonic powers, not. Like he's literally expecting the disciples to go stomp on snakes, like as if snake extermination was the mission of the church. No, no, no. There's a connection to the garden here. There's the idea of of Satan, the the great dragon. You know that those are those are metaphors for Satan. That's how I see that. So Mark um, doesn't seem to be using a metaphor though in the longer ending. The longer ending seems to be just talking about. These signs will accompany them. They'll speak with tongues. If They'll pick up serpents and if they drink any deadly poison, it won't hurt them. This doesn't seem to be a metaphor. This seems to be more literal. Might relate to what happened in the book of Acts. Here's a debate. Does it come from the event in Acts or does it predict the event in Acts? We'll come back to that next week. And um, there's one story though about poison. Okay, so the Mark passage, just to highlight it again. If they drink poison, any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. There's nothing in the New Testament that relates to this, but there's one story from church history and only one that I'm aware of that may relate to this in some fashion. So Eusebius, church historian writing in the fourth century, he writes about Papias, a church father from the early second century. And he says that Papias, so he puts this story to to being reported in the early second century. And so it happened sometime prior to that saying this, he tells another wonderful story of justice, surnamed Barsabbas. Let me get back to the home screen there. That he drank a deadly poison and yet by the grace of the Lord suffered no harm. If you have Eusebius, this is in his History of the Church, Book 3, Chapter 9. So this guy, Justice, he drank poison and suffered no harm because he was divinely protected. That's the, the only account. What we do not have anywhere, and snake handling churches need to know this, is any example of a Christian deliberately putting themselves in harm's way and we don't have anywhere any example of consistent interactions with snakes or poisons in the early church I mean that actually is more like a hundred years old this is pretty new and it's centered around the Appalachians so here are some questions about the serpents and poisons I want to answer these questions as I read commentaries most of them just ignore the questions that I'm actually asking you I'm sure you experience this too if you're watching this teaching, it's partly because you want the, those questions answered. The questions that everybody just skips over. Well, I'll do my best. And uh, here's the questions I have. The signs that are mentioned here, are they supposed to follow every believer? We walked through the signs, right? Are, they, are these four things supposed to follow every believer, if not who? Two, how consistent and continuing are they in time? So whoever they follow, we'll talk about that second. Are they supposed to always follow them? Is that consistent? Is this ongoing? Because this is how a lot of people use the verse today. Some charismatic churches would be quoting this for that purpose. Three, what about the snake handling churches? How would I respond? If you've been raised in a snake handling church, if you've just come across this teaching and you're interested, how would I react to the snake handling issue? We'll talk about that. So first question, do the signs follow every believer? Who do they follow? Let me read the passage and let's see if it answers it for us because that's always the first thing we should do. These signs will accompany those who have believed. Okay, that's a that's a group statement. Those who have believed. It doesn't say every single believer. It says those who have believed. Okay, in my name, they'll cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. Okay, it doesn't actually say, does it? Um, my first observation is that it's not terribly specific. It could be every single believer, or it could be they're going to follow the community of believers, these signs. It could go either way. It could go either way. So it's not, it doesn't, but one thing is this, whatever you take, if you say this is every believer, every individual believer, then you need all of these signs to take every believer because you got to be consistent in your interpretation. So every believer should be casting out demons. Every believer speaking in tongues, every believer picking up serpents, every believer is able to drink poison and not be harmed. And every believer can lay hands on the sick. And they'll recover in which case we have an army of healers in the church that need to get to work i i'm not going to take it that way but but what i'm suggesting is that i want people to realize that if they're going to do that with snakes or with healings they need to be consistent and do it with all of the above if you're going to say everyone speaks in tongues then everyone also heals why aren't you in the hospitals right now healing if i had that kind of healing gift i'd be all all looking for the sick so um, second question is: How consistent and continuing are they? Okay, it could be every believer it could just be the community. How consistent and continuing? Again, I'm just I'm leaving the scripture on the screen so you guys can see. It just doesn't say, does it? The context is, and, and it, there, it may even hint that it was. <laughs> I'm going to make enemies when I say this. I'm just trying to analyze the passage. Okay, I'm not even suggesting this passage is authentic or not. We'll get to that next week. But. The overall context if you were looking for a hint of how constant and continuing these sign gifts are he says go into all the world preach the gospel to all creation that's the context you're going to go preach the gospel these signs are going to accompany you and then at the end of verse 20 right it's past tense they preached everywhere and the lord confirmed um all i'm suggesting is the context of the sign gifts is the preaching of the gospel which is evangelism bringing the gospel into new communities okay that may give us a limit for where we expect these things to happen more all right follow along with me here I'm not just picking size I'm trying to analyze it carefully so it doesn't say specifically how long and continuing they are not clearly so what I want to do is add other places in the New Testament that help clarify these things for us so the sign gifts were they seen as following all believers and the answer is going to be no actually they were not First Corinthians twelve twelve, this doesn't mean it's not an all or nothing thing. It's not like nobody or everybody. That's not this solution to the problem here. We're just trying to piece together the data from the New Testament so we have a, a better understanding of gifts, which everybody wants to argue about, and some of us just want to understand. <laughs> so Second Corinthians twelve twelve says, the um, this is Paul the apostle. He's offering evidence for his true genuine apostolic ministry and he says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles this is pretty obvious here paul thinks this is this is what's assumed with his statement that everyone knows that apostles in particular do signs wonders and miracles that it's not seen as something every believer does but it's something that apostles in particular do. I'm not saying nobody else does it because that's not what scripture teaches either. But there is an emphasis on apostolic ministry, bringing the gospel to new places. And that's where the signs tend to happen the most. I'm not a cessationist, don't get me wrong. I'll I'll explain why I'm not in a minute. But what I'm gonna suggest here is that the focus of these sign gifts that Jesus is speaking about seems to be at least in, in, uh, in, in, like when it played out in real history, Paul says that this was focused on the apostles. We also read about this, how Paul and Peter and these guys, they had special miraculous ministries that followed them, right? A shadow from one of them healing somebody. Peter's, uh, Paul's handkerchief, handkerchiefs that, that touch Paul then being taken and healing people. This, this is not something everyone did. This is something the apostles tended to do more than anybody else. So it's not for all people. Is what i'm suggesting that the that these things are not like requirements for everybody um also the focus of the gifts is primarily the verification of the gospel initially now the cessationist will say the purpose of the gifts is to give us the scripture i think that's part of the story and it's true but it's it's not isolated to that the the focus of the giftings of the spiritual gifts of the signs and wonders is in laying the gospel into communities where it has not yet gone Right, and we get this in verse twenty of the of the longer ending of Mark. That's the context. Bringing the gospel into the world, signs will accompany what? Bringing the gospel into the world. Um, it may help for me to put it this way: the signs were not about proving. This is super important. This is a key issue with the longer ending about the signs. The signs were not about proving that a believer was a real believer. The signs were about proving that the gospel was the real gospel. That's how the longer ending's worded. Whether you take it as authentic or not, the signs are not about proving a believer is a believer. So anybody who says believers are supposed to speak in tongues, believers are supposed to pick up snakes, believers are supposed to do this or that, therefore you have to do these things to prove you're a believer—that's not the context of Mark. These signs are meant to preach the gospel. That's how it was in the early church. Or else, think about the Gospels uh, or the uh, the New Testament um, Epistle First John. First John specifically asks the question. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you show you're a Christian to others? 1 John answers this question. It's a challenging book because of that. What he never says is, you know you're a believer because you've been baptized. He never says, you know you're a believer because you hold snakes. Think about this. He never says, you know you're a believer because you do miraculous healings or because you speak in tongues. If those are the tests of a believer, why doesn't 1 John, the book that gives you the way to test if you're a believer, why doesn't it do those things? Instead, he talks about correct faith in the real Jesus. You gotta believe in the real Jesus, right? And then you gotta show that the love of God has impacted your life and that you're exhibiting love towards others. So you're gonna, you're living a changed life is not how you're saved, but it's a way that you show that your salvation is genuine. Okay, that's First John. I think that that's pretty strong when you consider that in context. Um, let me see. I'm just finding my notes here. Um, so the signs were about proving that those who preached the gospel were initially bringing the true gospel because many fake gospels would arise. And of course, we have that enshrined in our Bibles now, right? So the signs, a lot of the work of the signs was accomplished in giving us our New Testaments and making sure we had just the legitimate apostles information in there and not, not fake ones. Okay, that's important, but it also has a function going to the, uh, possibly today, when the gospel is being brought into new locations in particular. But let me first emphasize this. Since Mark 16 doesn't make it clear whether all believers will experience this for all time, but it provides a context where it could be something that's in the community as the gospel goes out, I can bring other scriptures in to support that as well. Um, Let me offer now a contrast. This is real Bible study stuff here. I'm not just trying to make you feel good. I'm trying to make you think biblically. All right, here we go. Acts 19, verses 11 and 12. Look at the stuff that Paul, God did through Paul. Right, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, some preachers right now they want you to think these are ordinary miracles and everyone's supposed to do them. But these were extraordinary, even in the even in Acts, even in a very miraculous time in the church. These were not normal. And People who expect everyone to do everything Paul did um, create a lot of anxiety and problems for their congregations, and they create a lot of forced fakery. Like, you have to fake it because it's, it, it's not what we actually are expecting as Christians. Um, so, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So, that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Wow. Exorcisms and healings happened through handkerchiefs or aprons that were carried from his body. Now, here's an interesting thing. This means that every other believer wasn't out there doing exorcisms and healings. Otherwise, why are you carrying stuff from Paul? You got believers. Just bring a believer. All believers do this. Now, that's a hyper charismatic wrong teaching. (laughs) Um, But the only time I see this in modern day is online. You could buy handkerchiefs. You could go Google it, right? You could buy somebody's handkerchief. I prayed over this handkerchief, you know, and, um, you know, we we, we, we have this prayer cloth. We prayed over it, and you could buy this oil that's like special oil and all these things. Uh, Paul, I'm absolutely positive he never sold any of this stuff. If you're selling healings, if you pay me this much money, I'll come to your house and I'll pray for you. If you give me this much money, I will uh, give you, I'll be your guide spiritually. If you... Um, buy this handkerchief it'll be it'll have a healing quality like that's the easiest way to know that this is a teacher you don't want to listen to this is a person you don't want to follow this is someone who's not a good source for you Uh, yeah no so that's what happens in um in that part in acts verses 9 and 12 but then when we read later acts 19 um uh so just Hold on, let me see. I was already in Acts 19, 11, 12. Ah, Galatians 4, 13. I just missed up my notes there. Sorry, guys. I'm, I'm extremely human. So Galatians 4, 13. Paul the apostle. Look at the contrast. The guy whose handkerchiefs touched him and they healed people. And then Galatians 4, 13, he says, but you know that it was because of bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you for the first time. Paul was... So sick or crippled or injured, um, probably not injury and bodily illness implies like a sickness of some kind or disease of some kind. And it was affecting him to the point where he couldn't travel according to his normal travel plans. So he detoured and stayed in Galatia. And there in Galatia, he preaches the gospel to them only because he can't go where he wanted to go. Paul the Apostle. Paul, why don't you use one of your handkerchiefs? Right? (laughs) Right? My point here is that this trial, this bodily condition that he had that would have caused others to look at him and think, ooh, right? Maybe had to do with his eyes because he talks about how they would have plucked out their eyes and given them to him. This is, he had some kind of bodily disease type thing that may have been related to his eyes that was loathsome to those around him potentially. And it messed up his travel and caused him to preach the gospel places he wasn't intending to originally. What's my point? It's not a contradiction. It's a seasonal change. Paul preaches the gospel. And when he's bringing the gospel to new places, there is often miracles, major miracles, highlighted around the apostles to demonstrate the truthfulness of the message they bring. But those miracle workings did not happen throughout their entire lives. Everywhere they went forever. Even in the apostles who were hubs of miraculous activity. Paul himself doesn't get healed in this circumstance. Um, 2 Timothy 4.20 gives us another example. In 2 Timothy, we read about a guy named Trophimus. Trophimus is one of the guys who traveled with Paul, helped him in ministry. And he says, Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. I mean, if Paul can just heal forever and healings just go, it's not like Paul's doubting. We don't really about Paul doubting struggles of faith, being weak in the faith or anything like that. There's simply no healing for Trophimus because it's just not part of what God's doing at the time. Here's what I'm saying. Miracles highlighted on the apostles to demonstrate the truthfulness of the gospel, but they didn't continue in time for all eternity. So they were limited in the, not occasional miracles, but in the regular miraculous activity that was more limited to the apostles. And it seemed to be focused on certain periods of time. Now, again, I'm making cessationists very happy right now, (laughs) but don't get too happy (laughs) because I'm not done yet. Um, When healings didn't come though, Paul learned learned new lessons and he talks about all the time. And this is one of the most important lessons we can learn. When when God tells Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, like, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul sees himself as strong because of his weakness, because it makes him depend upon the Lord. He learned dependence upon God through weakness. That is, sickness and weakness have a valuable place in the life of believers, teaching us to depend upon God. Miracles are not always the best thing. even for the apostles. If healings were constant, if healings were for every believer and they were to ha- and they were to happen in every believer's life all through time, as some hypercharismatic teaching says, then you wouldn't expect what you read about in the New Testament. We see it focused on apostles and we see it not even happening through the entire lifetime of the apostle, but especially during certain times of outreach. Paul also makes it clear and the NASB is really helpful here, because this is a passage where your translation really, you know, can change your view of the passage. Um, but in the Greek, it, I think what's generally agreed on is that the way that say the NASB reads it is accurate to the Greek. Paul is trying to make a point that not everybody has all the gifts. So he says, are all apostles, right? Uh, excuse me, all are not apostles? Are they? It's a rhetorical question in Greek, but it's definitely implied no. He's saying, no, they're not. Are all prophets? or all are not prophets, are they? All are not, I think I'm reading, in my head, I have the King James Version, which is, uh, are all prophets. <laughs> Forgive me for reading the, the brain version instead of the one in front of me. Um, so he says, are, um, oh, I went to NAS? Okay, I, 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 I. All, right. are, all are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? Yet some of the hyper charismatic stuff that's been rising through Bethel and some of the connected teachings, and I'm gonna disagree here, is that, Everybody's supposed to be working miracles. Everybody's going to be a prophet effectively, right? Like we're all going to prophesy. We're all going to um, do all this stuff. But Paul is correct. Here's the crazy thing. Corinth is a church that is unhealthily highlighting spiritual gifts. And here's his corrections. And he's like, hey, everybody's not an apostle. Everybody's not a prophet. Everybody's not a teacher. Everybody doesn't work miracles. And he says, all do not have gifts of healings, do they? Yet there are teachers who are telling every Christian to go out and just believe you're a healer by faith because they're telling you you are even though scripture says all don't have gifts of healings all do not speak with tongues do they what what all don't speak with tongues paul says that everyone doesn't speak with tongues yeah and and it's true that in other uh, translations it's 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 a um it's a question without an answer do all have gifts of healings do all speak with tongues do all interpret the context makes it clear. Paul is saying, no, they don't. What I'm saying is the same stuff that, that is on the list in the longer ending, healings and miracles and tongues and um, all this stuff, uh, even the snake stuff, like it's not mentioned here. But but those things, Paul lists as things that not every believer has. So if we're going to let the New Testament help us interpret the longer ending, we have to conclude that these sign gifts are in the community of believers, but they're not in every believer. And that there are specifically for the preaching of the gospel into new locations. And they may exist in other places, but that's what they're specifically focused on. So I am not seeking, saying I'm a cessationist, but sometimes I think, I, I, I view myself as a charismatic. Some would push back and say they don't think I am. And that's fine. I, I think I'm a charismatic because I believe in the gifts and I believe they're active today. But sometimes I think I'm a lessationist. <laughs> And so full disclosure, if you're listening to me, be aware of my position on this. I do think there's a strong case that can be made, not for the ceasing of gifts, but for the idea that there are less active gifts operating in the church when the gospel has already saturated a location. That I think we can make a strong case. I think that it still happens today. And I think that massive, wonderful miracle moments still happen today and seasons as the spirit wills, especially in unreached people groups. And I could anecdotally say that the reports we hear from missionaries bringing the gospel to new places is that there tends to be more of a hub of spiritual activity there. And I think the reason for this is to verify the gospel to a new group of people. You know, a hundred years later, we might see less of those things happening in those same locations. If it's, if my understanding is consistent here. So to answer my first two questions, as I do this exhaustive teaching, um, do these signs follow every believer? No. They follow a community. Um, how consistent and continuing in time are they based on the rest of scripture? They're not consistent in continuing in time. Um, but that doesn't mean they cease, right? It does mean that they're occasional in whether it's just God wants to, for some reason, or because the gospel is going out into a new place, which means Christians can relax and stop anxiously trying to force miracles to happen in their communities. Um, but don't try to force them not to happen either. So, um, Final point on this, um, these things were not total protection at all times, even the even if you take the longer ending as authentic, the, the statement about snakes and poisons, uh, nothing's going to harm you kind of idea. It's not meant to be, I don't think, total protection all the time, just like the other things on the list aren't happening across the entire church, across every believer and for all time. So the snake thing, the poison thing wouldn't be applied to that either, if you take the longer ending as authentic. Even with the apostles who had all these signs, they didn't have total protection, They still suffered and died for the gospel. They still suffered and died. So they had protection. I'm going to interpret it this way. They had protection like Jesus. You couldn't kill Jesus no matter how hard you tried until the time came for Jesus to die and then it was going to happen no matter who tried to stop it. I think this may be the case for those who are walking out their calling as well. That... um, As long as you're not being a fool, as long as you're walking in the will of God, like nothing's going to be able to harm you outside of the will of God. But there may come a time where your suffering is required by God, is called by God, is the will of God. And Mark gives us this, the Gospel of Mark gives us this in Jesus. Jesus couldn't be killed, and then he just had to drive home into their hearts. But suffering is not always wrong. I'm going to, according to God's will, I'm going to go to the cross and die. And this is something that we're called to embrace is this potential for our own suffering as well. This is a major teaching in Mark. So to to interpret those couple verses as to say that like Christians won't go through hardship or something would be to miss the entire gospel and misinterpret those last verses. Okay, final thing. What about snake handling? Snake handling churches. Let's talk about it. Um One thing I'll say this is, the snake handling stuff that I've seen, uh, not that I've been in a service, I wouldn't go to a service where they're doing that, Um, but the stuff I've seen videos online, interviews of people doing it and stuff, I do not think that what some people theorize that they're like, they're like not really poisonous snakes or they're like milking the venom out of them so that they can't like hurt the preacher and stuff. I don't think that's true. I really believe these people are sincere. They're very sincere. They... Generally speaking, what I'm seeing is people who really believe that they're supposed to do it as an act of faith and that God's going to protect them if they do it. The problem is this. Sincerity is not nearly enough. We don't just need sincere beliefs. We need right beliefs. Sincerity is necessary, but it is not sufficient. And you can genuinely, I mean, the guys that drove planes into the towers on 9-11, they were sincere. The people who ravage and murder people in the name of Islam are sincere. They're just wrong. So sincerity is just not good enough. So I'm, I'm going to say like, hey, you know, props for being sincere, but you're wrong. You're badly, badly wrong. So the, the things that they're missing, those who do the snake handling in churches, is the direct context of Mark that we've already discussed, the fuller context of the New Testament, which I've given now to explain that these things are not meant to be done um, like that. And they're not exampled that way and it's only like a hundred years old or so that I know of people even doing these sorts of things but they're also missing two things one the number of people they know who have died from snake handling because these congregations that do the snake handling stuff very frequently they have they have graves for the pastors who've died or the or the congregants who've died while doing the snake handling Um, this should be a red flag to you but they just see it as um, not enough faith or something But the second thing they're missing is the one New Testament example that does connect to the snake handling. And I'm going to take us there now. You know the passage, but you may not realize it connects very, very importantly to the snake handling. So this is the one good example that I think the snake handlers miss. The temptation of Jesus by Satan. It says, then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, Throw yourself down for it's written he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands They shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. This is the same as the temptation to handle snakes To drink poison To tempt the Lord by doing something dangerous because God will protect you, right? I'm gonna go do this dangerous thing. Oh, it's okay Well, God will protect me because I can't be killed until it's his time well you do something dangerous you might find that his time is right now (laughs) I mean if he's not calling you to do it don't be fool. so Jesus' response to this parallel situation because the snake hand was like God promised you protect me I'm going to put myself in deliberate harm's way to prove to prove that I am a believer and to prove that God will protect me Jesus was tempted with the same thing and then Jesus says to him it is written again you shall not tempt the Lord your God end of story that's it In no way can you interpret the longer ending of Mark to deliberately put yourself in harm's way to try to like keep, you know, make it so that God has to command his angels concerning you, so to speak. This is the temptation of Satan to Jesus. Jesus rejects it. You got to reject it too. This is the thing that you don't need textual critical analysis of the longer ending of Mark. Like you just need to read your Bible and go in no reading of scripture, is this weird, thrill-seeking, mixed with false piety, mixed with confused sincerity, something that we're supposed to do. To purposely put yourself in harm's way. Like, where do I see Jesus jumping off buildings just so that God will protect him? Where do I see the disciples purposely, like, trying to get people to attack them so that they can be protected by God? But we see these snake handlers, sincere as, as, as they could possibly be, falling hook line and sinker for the temptation of satan to jesus um, these things would these protections would only be when it's forced upon you it would be um not guaranteed safety in all scenarios just like it wasn't for the disciples it would be specifically in connection with showing the Gospels true and if you're part of a church like this share with them matthew matthew chapter four right the sermon on the the Uh, It's before the Sermon on the Mount, sorry. Matthew chapter four, the temptation of Jesus by the devil and show them the parallels and try to get it through to them to realize that your sincerity doesn't matter a lick if your beliefs are wrong about these things. Um, Because people who are sincere and doing wrong things are people who are simply deceived. That's all that means. Sad, sad, sad. So these verses you guys can see, and this may set up for next week's study um, because I still need more time to prep it. But these verses that I've just studied with you—they're part of the reason why some people want to get Mark out of get the longer ending of Mark out of the Bible. Like this, this doesn't matter because when people say, "Well, snake like they go, "Well, that, uh, yeah," but that's not authentic, and it, it easily gets rid of it. But I want to say this: I think we're safe with the contents of the longer ending of Mark, uh, theologically and in, in church practice, as long as we understand it carefully, as we do all of Scripture. I think we're safe. I don't think we should get get it out of the Bible because it causes theological problems, and I think it's concerning. It's concerning to use that as a motive to remove something from you know, what you estimate as being scripture. On the other hand, a different analysis has to happen. And that's gonna be manuscript evidence, church fathers, um, vocabulary and style and internal evidence in, in, in Mark, all those sorts of things. We're gonna look at all that starting next week. And I will give you the best answers I can on those, as much clarity as I can possibly get. <laughs> I'll be giving it to you. So then it ends with the following in Mark chapter 16, 19 and 20. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven. The way that's worded is really important. And sat down at the right hand of God. So this is the ascension. Um, I'll mention quickly because I'm going so long on today's study. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up here. But I'll mention quickly the importance of the ascension. In the New Testament, the ascension is in the passive over and over again. It doesn't say Jesus went up to heaven. Jesus ascended up to heaven. That's like not what we generally read. What we read is, even though we call it the ascension, we read in the text that he was received into heaven. So it's a passive sense. Jesus isn't the one causing it. It's happening to him. I'm not suggesting Jesus can't cause it. He can do what he wants. He's God, do what he wants. The reason why it's passive is because it's implying that heaven, right, the father is approving of and receiving the Son into this exalted place that He's being exalted, as Philippians talks about, after His humility, now He's being raised back up. Okay, so it's in the passive sense to imply the impro- approval and vindication of the Son of God. That's the idea. This is important in the text, it's, it, it's a big deal, actually. Also there's this idea of him sitting down at the right hand of God. Part of the sitting down there's various elements here that have theological importance, right? Part of the sitting down visual is that Jesus is done working. Okay, you sit when you're done working. Hebrews talks about this that he compared Hebrews compares Jesus to the high priest and the high priest would never sit. They couldn't sit in the temple. But Jesus after he did his one sacrifice, he sat down and Hebrews says this is because he's done, right? He He has no more sacrifice to offer. So Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is to say his salvation work is done. All you do is trust in Christ and wait on him to return. Another element of Jesus' sitting is that he's enthroned as the authority of all things. He's at the right hand of God, so he is the authority of all things. Um, So he has authority over all creation. This is Jesus' Lord is the point, right? Jesus is Lord, and he's coming back and every knee will bow every tongue will confess and that's that's probably the third element that's there in him sitting at the right hand of the father is that um, there's a connection to psalm 110 i'm actually going to bring it to you now uh, psalm 110 verse 1 this is a uh, my speedy survey of some of the implications of the ascension of christ um, which deserves a lot more time but psalm 110 1 the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand sit where at my right hand till i make your enemies your footstool there's, there's an allusion to Psalm 110, and this is the most commonly quoted verse in the entire New Testament. The New Testament quotes this one verse and this psalm more than anything else it does in the Old Testament, and it does a few things. It shows the deity of Christ because the Lord said to my Lord, and like Jesus even pointed this out, he's like, who is David's Lord that, that Yahweh is talking to? <laughs> well, that's because the Messiah is the Lord of David because he's before David because he's divine. Um, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now this implies that after the first coming of Christ, there is a second coming that is going to be about forcefully subjecting everyone to his rule. He's going to come and claim his territory, so to speak. The second coming is Jesus saying, I am stepping into my kingdom now. I've given you ample time to submit and yield and join my kingdom. But those who are causing havoc will be kicked out. And those who who are yielding to the Lordship of Christ will be brought in and so that's the implication of him sitting is that he's enthroned that he's waiting on the time when the second coming is going to be uh, establishing his kingdom and we're waiting on that as well so it's, it's all those different elements there's more i could talk about but um this is the season of grace is the point jesus is sitting at the right hand waiting long suffering not willing that any should perish but that you would put your trust in jesus christ today right now before that time comes, this is the season of grace. This is your chance to uh, turn to the sun. And then verse 20, the last verse in the longer ending of Mark. And they went out and preached everywhere. And this, I got to point out something I'll bet you would, I'll bet you'd miss. Most of you would miss if, if, if I wasn't here to help you out. Not, not trying to get props. I'm just saying it's it's neat how much we don't catch when we're just casually reading these things. So, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Notice the past tense. They went out, past tense. They preached. Okay, it's already been accomplished. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. In this one verse, Mark is covering about 20 years of content. Why do I say that? Okay, if you're still with me in one of my, one of my long studies. Um, reading the gospel of Acts. The time it took them to preach at least through the known world, when they use the phrase throughout the world, what they would see that as at least being the known world, you know, through like up through Rome and the Mediterranean area and and all that. So minimal, we're talking like about 20 years for it to accomplish this. They went out and preached everywhere. Remember, Jesus had commanded them to preach what? Everywhere, right? To every creature, to the whole world. Now, I'm not saying that the job's done and there's no one else to preach to what i'm saying is to even use that terminology in mark 16:20 is to is to say that this is summarizing content that took about 20 years to be discussed in that fashion with those terms that means that the longer ending of mark and this to me is interesting the longer ending of mark covers in one verse and in its its 12 verses more content than the entire gospel of mark covers in the prior 16 chapters And that's interesting because it just helps you see there is a different sort of style going on here, right? The summary that happens at the end is different than what we've been reading so far. I'm not saying you should discount the passage for that reason, but we want all the data. Um, So the longer ending does seem to summarize though. uh, Content we do find largely in Luke, John, and Acts, and whether it comes from that stuff or that stuff comes from, from it, so to speak, that's up for debate. But our commission now as Christians, and here's what I want to sign off with before I pray, before I pray us out. Um, the discussion is longer, long we'll deal with next week. The commission though, and the vast majority of the content in there is nothing unique to Mark. You and me are definitely called morally obligated to preach the gospel to people. But I think especially in modern, like first world countries, we find it increasingly uncomfortable to tell people about Jesus. We just have to get over it. They absolutely need Jesus, man. The world needs Jesus. Like our neighbors need to know Christ. And I'd rather have an army of Christians clumsily bringing up Jesus in conversation than a bunch of people too timid about being embarrassed or getting it wrong or doing it not the right way or not being able to figure out how to open the door. I, I would just rather have us clumsily Spitting out information about Christ, um, whether that means you're going up to strangers, you're handing out tracts, you're or you're just going out to lunch with a friend. Hey, can we get lunch, man? Something I want to talk to you about. And you sit there and say, Hey, I'm be honest with you, I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but I want to talk to you about God. See what happens. You don't have to force someone to be converted on the moment, on the spot, create that kind of pressure. But you 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 can tell them the truth about Christ and try to point them maybe to resources that might help them we have a commission to preach the gospel to the world and it's probably the most important thing I can do as a Christian is to bring the gospel to people and yet how many of us, um, we've just become silent or, or we, we do it in like, we're not actually preaching. We're, we're just saying Christian things in public, right? Like, but rather preaching the gospel has to do with, here's a person, I'm going to communicate to them in ways they can understand about what they need in Jesus, um, that's a different thing. So, let's remember that. This is the one message we preach: um, not politics, not social reform, not humanism. None of those things change your eternal fate. They're all secondary. This is the big thing: the commission. All right, uh, let's let's pray. Let me. I'll show you my cat, and then I'll pray. Oh wait, that's the cat video. This is the cat Cam. She's actually with me right there. Shh, she's sleeping. <laughs> she's like you woke me up (laughs) all right let's lord we want to take very seriously the commission to preach the gospel but many of us feel um, and i'll speak for a lot of people here feel feel just sort of crippled in our motivation or in our ability or ideas of how to go about doing it we just pray lord stir up in us the drive to share the gospel to see the need in the lives of those around us lord and to be undaunted by those who hear and don't receive lord that we wouldn't be doing this for our validation we wouldn't be preaching the gospel to make ourselves feel better about our christian faith but we'd be doing it to see people know the gospel of christ and come saved lord open the mouths of your people open our hearts to our neighbors and our family and our friends and people we meet that we would better fulfill the commission to bring the gospel everywhere in jesus name amen amen thank you all very much um i'll be with you i I may have a video up wednesday may possibly i don't know we'll see just like a short clip that i'll I'll have up and then friday i'll be with you for the q a and i appreciate your guys prayers for me i don't ask you very often for stuff like this but um the study for on the long reading of mark has been one of the most difficult things i've studied in a very long time it's very complicated and uh, there's people on both sides who like offer summaries of the data that that aren't trustworthy in in cases. And so it makes it very hard to, to like muddle through all that. Well, if it's that hard for me, I know, and I actually have the time to spend, you know, exorbitant amount of hours on it. I know how much of a pain it is for so many others who can't just stop and focus on this for like three or four weeks or a month. So I appreciate your prayers that I would have clarity, wisdom, knowledge, understanding so that I could bring it to others and that it would be a really good resource for people on this topic. All right. Thank you.